Good morning, Boker Tov and all. Seriousness, thank you to all who've joined Friends of BRS and show support for the wonderful Shurim classes, learning opportunities that we provide. We thank you for your support and appreciate your partnership. Our Parsha series uh, this year is generously sponsored by dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, the Nishmas, David ben Menachem Monash, whose Neshama should have an Aliyah. Before we delve into this week's Parsha, Vayichi, and conclude the opening book of the Torah, book of Bereshis, I want to spend just a moment on today. Today is Asara B'Teves, it's the 10th day of Teves. And if you, like me, are missing your morning coffee, both to wake you up and warm you up, then you know that today is a fast day. And the question is why? What are we fasting for? Why are we fasting? When I was a child, we mistakenly thought we fast because somehow by somehow by uh, refraining, abstaining from the pleasures of, uh, of the material world. It's a kapara, it's an atonement. But the truth is, most people spend the day planning how they'll take their nap and what they're going to break their fast on, and today is the shortest fast of the whole year. And we're so fixated and focused on depriving ourselves of food, as if we can't make it 12 hours without something to eat, that we neglect to really tap into what today is really all about, which is self-reflection, introspection, to think about all that happens in the world, all that happened both in our history and will happen in our destiny, are not random chance or fluke, but are by design and are orchestrated from above. And that all that happens is communicating and signaling a message to us. The truth is, Asara B'Teves, while identified as one day, the 10th of Teves, really is part of a three-day fast because there were events that fell on all three days except we're incapable of fasting all three, so we consolidate and we group them into one. So just to share a few, Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked Babylonian leader, laid siege to Yerushalayim on the 10th of Teves. And that was the beginning of the end. That siege, that inability to access one another, to access resources and goods, to access the holy city of Yerushalayim, or the residents of Yerushalayim to get out, it was the beginning of the end that we will mark Hopefully not. Hopefully we'll mark it with celebration, joy, and a yontif in Yerushalayim. But if not, we'll mark Tisha above this summer. We sit on the floor and we bemoan the destruction of the two Batei Mikdash. Today was what began and launched that, launched that all with the uh, siege of Yerushalayim. The Gemara tells us that as well, Asar B'Teves corresponds and commemorates another terrible event in our history. King Ptolemy took 72 of our sages, 72 of our great rabbis, and he separated them into separate rooms and he told them to translate the Torah into Greek, the Septuagint. Now the truth is a great miracle occurred and all of them were careful when they translated, they also edited, not in a way that would distort or misrepresent Hashem's sacred Torah, according to the Yamsha Shlomo and the Maharshal, to do so would be a capital crime, but they did so in a way to protect the Jewish people from giving a negative impression one that would bring a grave consequence for the Jewish people. So on the one hand, there was a miracle involved, namely that they all came up with the exact same translation, and they all used some editorial freedom in the places that were necessary, not to elicit the ire, not to elicit the anger of our enemies. Rav famously said, you know what would have been a bigger miracle? Not that they took 72 great rabbis and put them in 72 different rooms and they all came up with the same translation. Said Rav it would have been a bigger miracle if all 72 were in the same room and they agreed on the same translation. That would have been an even bigger miracle. But nevertheless, there was a great miracle. 
of the Septuagint, but it represented a, a terrible moment for the Jewish people because our sacred Torah, which was our code language with the Ribbon Shalom, with the Almighty, became translated, became accessible to all. It was diminished in that way. It was diminished in that way. Ezra HaSofer, Ezra the great leader, who took us back from exile, died on Asara Beteves, died in these three-day period, and we commemorate his passing because Ezra was a leader who was a voice of moral clarity. And with his demise, with his passing, the people recoiled and the people um, regressed to a level of immorality. Today, in modern times, is also designated Asara Beteves, Holocaust survivors who didn't know when they lost their loved one and what was the appropriate Yurtzeit to mark, Asara Beteves was designated as the Yom HaKadosh HaKlali. Today was the universal or group generic Kaddish. Today was designated Asara Beteves as a fast day, not Yom HaShoah and not even Tisha B'Av, though we incorporate certainly that commemoration into those days as well, but the Yom HaKadosh HaKlali. What all these days have in common, are days that the Jewish people are supposed to be reflective and introspective about our condition in the world, our virtue, our merit, our worthiness. And we're supposed to try to overcome that which launched it all. You know, I looked this morning and I couldn't find in a safer, I couldn't find the source, but I had somewhere in my notes, so I'm not sure where it comes from, that the date on the Hebrew calendar when Yosef was thrown in the pit by the brothers was Asara Beteves. And I don't know where I got that from. If it's true, it makes sense. Because all of these terrible events all are the result of the sinas chinam. Why we still remain in the exile. While we still remain targeted and threatened. While we still need rallies and protests and marches against anti-Semitism. In the 21st century, in the great year 2020, we still have to look at the world and tell them we have a right to exist. We have a right to live in safety and security. That in the streets of New York, Jews still in 2020 have to stand up for themselves and say that we deserve freedom, freedom of religion, we deserve to live in safety. It's unfathomable, unfathomable, it's unimaginable, it's incomprehensible, and yet that exile that we live in, that fragility, that vulnerability, that reminder that ultimately we are are here only the graciousness of Hashem, that's a result of the story of Yosef and his brothers. That's Sinas Chinam, that really began it all, and it has not yet concluded. It's not yet ended. In fact, it's a Rabbeinu Bachya on this parsha, And here we'll segue already into the parsha. And the Rabbeinu Bachya on this parsha notes that did Yosef actually forgive his brothers? Did the brothers really ask for that forgiveness? If you look at the text simply, the answer would be yes. They ask for forgiveness, and Yosef says, ah, it's... All good, let bygones be bygones. This was the will of Hashem that I would end up in this position in Egypt. It wasn't you, it was the Almighty, it was Hashem. Let it go, we're all good. If you look at the text, the narrative simply, it sounds like Yosef absolutely forgave them and they asked genuinely for that forgiveness. However, Rabbi Bachya brings up a very compelling question. If that's the case, if the curtain comes down on Parshas Vayechi, if the curtain comes down on Sefer Bereshis, if the curtain comes down on the development of the first Jewish family, and all is good and they lived happily ever after, I ask you a very simple question. Why do we read the story of the Asara Haruge Malchus? Why do we have a Kina on Tisha B'av and one of the Slichos on Yom Kippur are the story of the ten martyrs whom the Romans rounded up and murdered brutally, brutally. They were not contemporaneous to one another, 
though we read the story and the piyut as if they were, they overlap, but they were not all contemporaneous. But they were the victims. The Romans held them accountable. And the Medrash Anecha Chazal tell us that why did they die? Because the Roman general opened the Chumash and he was reading Bereshit. And he said, you know, Yosef, the brothers never paid the price. They were never held accountable. There was never a consequence for what they did to Yosef. And so he put them on trial and they lost the trial. And they were brutally, brutally murdered. The Asara Haruge Malchus, these 10 great rabbinic figures, the ambassadors of our Masora, what we lost with them and we lost with their Torah. What, what's that all about? If Yosef forgave his brothers and the curtain comes down and breaches and all's well that ends well and they live happily ever after, why are we reading that slicha? Why are we reading that kina? Why is there a story of the Asara Haruge Malchus? And so Rabbi Nabachya has what is really quite a depressing comment but I think very true, which is that the brothers never offer the most heartfelt, remorseful apology. It's a very superficial surface apology. You know, it's the kind of apology that, I'm so sorry if I hurt you. You know that whole Elul time? I want to ask for Mechila, if, maybe, possibly I hurt you. I don't know, I don't care, I didn't really pay attention. But somewhere it says I'm supposed to check off that I asked you for Mechila. You know that apology, that useless, empty worthless apology? Well, the brother's apology was not much better than that. They feared for their lives. They were worried for Yosef's retribution. And so they said, listen, we're really sorry. But Yosef didn't buy it. And what confirmed for Yosef his suspicion that they weren't heartfelt is our parsha. Because what did the brothers come and tell Yosef in our parsha? When Yaakov dies, Yaakov Avino Lomes, he never dies, but when physically he dies, when Yaakov died, they run and they rush to, the, to Yosef. And what do they tell him? Yosef, we forgot to tell you, but right before dad died, right before dad died, he said, you shouldn't do anything to us, we shouldn't do anything to you. What do you mean right before dad died? How did Yosef know for sure that his dad, his tati, his abba, whatever Yaakov was called, how did Yosef know for sure that there's no way that Yaakov spoke to the brothers about not uh, getting into it with Yosef? How did Yosef know that for sure? Would the brothers have told their father what they did? No. Of course not. Absolutely not. The only one who would have told was Yosef. And Yosef knew that he never told. Not only did he not told, tell, we are told that from the moment they were reunited and from the moment Yaakov descended to Mitzrayim, Yosef never allowed himself to be alone with his father, not a moment. Can you imagine the sensitivity and the kindness of a Yosef. Why did Yosef do that? Yosef longed for the affection. Yosef longed for that private time. 17 years his whole childhood was defined by his closeness and by the singularity of the relationship between Yosef and his father. And now they're reunited after a 22 year separation where the brothers have had the luxury of their father's time and Yosef was deprived of it and denied it. Of course Yosef would have been entitled to say, I have a daily chavrusa with dad in the palace. We lock the door. It's private time. Nobody enters it. We're not sharing it. And yet, Yosef says, no, not interested. And why does Yosef say, no, not interested? Why was he sure for the next 17 years that they were together, he and his father again? Not a coincidence. We'll begin in a moment. 17 and 17. But why did Yosef ensure he was never alone with his father? Not for a moment. Because he didn't want his brothers to suspect. 
that he was using that private confidential time to inform on them, to throw them under the bus, to tell the dad what they had done. Could you imagine the level of sensitivity of Yosef? The level of loyalty of Yosef to his brothers? Yosef puts protecting them ahead of his own interest or of his own desire, of his own want. What a level of sensitivity. My seven-year-old son just told me a story, I think I guess he heard it in school, about Rafutner, that one of his Talmidim who waited a long time to have a child called him to say, Rebbe, we had a baby. And Rafutner, who was known to scream and give an enthusiastic mazel tov, just said, call me back in 15 minutes and hung up the phone. And the Talmud didn't understand. After waiting so long and feeling such joy, his Rebbe, he was so excited to be able to tell his Rebbe the news and to hear his Rebbe's reaction. And that's the, call me back in 15 minutes, he hung up the phone. So he called his Rebbe back, and when he called now this time, the footner yelled, Mazel Tov! He said, Rebbe, what, what happened before? He said, I was sitting with a couple who have no children who've been trying hard, and I didn't want to react and respond with such enthusiasm, with such a huge Mazel Tov, and they would ask, what was that about? That's why I asked you to call me back 15 years later. The righteous, a tzaddik, a tzaddik, lives with a level of con- consciousness and mindfulness not to give in to the emotion of how I want to react and how I want to respond and what I want to say and who I want to be alone with. But the tzaddik lives with a level of mindfulness, consciousness, sensitivity. How will it be interpreted by others? And will it damage or injure or harm those around me? Rav Futner was careful. Yosef HaTzadik was incredibly careful. Could, again, could you imagine he was never... If anyone would have been entitled to say, I could care less what they think. I could care less what they suspect. I could care less. Let them worry. Let them schwitz it out a little bit. Let them not know what I'm telling Abba, Tati, Dad about them. If anyone was entitled, it was Yosef, but he refused. So Yosef knew that Yaakov could not have gone to his deathbed knowing what happened. The brothers certainly wouldn't have told their father. And Yosef was so careful not to tell him. He knew the brothers. He knew that Yaakov didn't know. And he knew the brothers manufactured. He knew they made it up. They lied. And so Yosef, Nebuch, this outsider, who was desperate, desperate to break in and to be among the brothers, to be one and the same. And when they reconcile, he does maybe the most magnanimous thing in all of history. He does the most generous gesture of all time. He gives his brothers a second chance. A second chance. I share with you when we get up to the parish of Pesach Sheni, that one of the reasons given for Pesach Sheni, who was Tmei Meis, who was impure that needed the second Pesach, those who were carrying the bones of Yosef, that he's going to make his family promise not to leave him at time that we read about in our parsha. And why is it that the bones of Yosef inspired Pesach Sheni? Because if anyone taught us the notion of a second chance, it was Yosef Hatzat. Yosef taught us the idea and the ideal of a second chance. And God gave a second chance with Pesach Sheni. It's the Yantif, it's the Chag of second chances. All in the merit of Yosef, who perhaps was the archetype, the paradigm, who taught us what it means to give a second chance. So Yosef, who's this outsider and is desperate to break in, and he gives them a second chance. And finally, he's happy-go-lucky, and he's reunited with his brothers, and he sets them up for success, and he's one of them until they come in our parsha and say, oh yeah, dad, before he died, he had a message for you we were supposed to deliver. And all of a sudden, Yosef realizes, you know, they don't think I ever really forgave them. And they're not really so desperate for forgiveness. 
and I guess I'm still an outsider. And so whatever tinge, whatever twinge of that, of that tension remained was enough to create the episode and the story of the Asura Asara Harugei Malchus. And until today, we continue to suffer from the sinners Chinam. That tension, that rivalry, that judgment, that marginalization, that rejection, that inability to live together and accept one another. You know, everyone talks about, and it's true, and I don't want to take away whatsoever, if I have time, I'm going to write an article this week about the Siamashas in MetLife Stadium and 92,000 people in the Siamashas down here, several thousand people. And everywhere there was a Siamashas, there was an enormous Kiddush Hashem, and there was an enormous display of Achtis, and behind the scenes there was enormous politics and tension and Seneschinam. And we don't like to talk about that part, and I'm not going to talk about it now, and I know, unfortunately, a lot about it. I know way too much about it, much more than I want to know. Who sits where and who speaks and when and how and why and labels and icons and logos. It's, we're still stuck. We're still stuck with Yosef and the brothers. And while we make progress, and there's much to celebrate, and I'm not going to be the Grinch who stole the Sia Mashas. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to paint a negative picture of it. We should celebrate it. And we should, we should regale in the glory and the success and it should carry us. We should bask in it for the next seven and a half years until we merit to get together. And there definitely were glimpses of progress and breakthrough. My Rebbe on the, on the Jumbotron, the big screen of MetLife Stadium at the Agudah Sponsor Siyam Mashas is a wonderful progress. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. There's a lot to celebrate. But my point is as much as we celebrate and take steps forward, if we're honest and we look in the mirror, we continue to suffer from this exact same thing. And that's why we're fasting today. You know why we're hungry? Because we can't get along. If we got along, we would have a reason to eat. If we got along, we can fresh together. But you know why we're hungry? We're depriving ourselves of food, not as if some atonement for 12 whole hours will go without a little extra food. Most of us have enough. We can, <laughs> we can live off of uh, what we've been banking. Most of us have enough. We're okay, we'll survive. Why are we not eating? Because we're taking a moment. We sit down to the Pesach Seder, we dip the karpas, the Ketzonas Pasim. Before we enjoy and celebrate the Yitzhiah from the time, the Exodus and its miracles, we remember how we got there to begin with. And I would say that in every moment that we remain in the Galos, geographically, physically, spiritually, metaphysically, as long as we are in the Galos, the Galos of anti-Semitism, and the Galos of conflict and tension, and the gallus of threats and danger. As long as we're in the gallus, every celebration still has just a little bit of the recognition that we remain with these problems. And if we want to break out and break free and we finally want to transition and change things, then it's up to us. We just have to figure out a way to get along and to break this vicious, vicious cycle and to not marginalize and reject and judge, but instead to unite and to bring in and to create greater and greater community and greater and great people. Okay, so that was a word I wanted to say at the beginning of Asara Bateves and its connection to our Parsha, and that with that, we begin. We begin. We're just getting started. Parsha's Vayechi, page 268 in the stone, Arts Chomish. Yaakov lives in Mitzrayim 17 years. And and it was the days of Yaakov, the years of his life. What a clumsy Pasuk. What a difficult Pasuk to translate. What a Pasuk that you could have said so much more succinctly that you could have shortened. Yaakov lived in Mitzrayim 17 years. 
Okay, so far so good. So what is going on? What's going on over here? The Heilig of Vishnitzer, the Imre Chaim, says the following. Yaakov Avinu Olav Hashem Hechnes Chiyos Gam Ba'osam Shehem Gam Ba'osam Shehem Be'eretz Mitzrayim Meshukayim Rachman Atzlam Ba'artzius V'Taivos Hashiflus Maisa Eretz Mitzrayim. Whenever we want to describe a morally depraved, decadent, corrupt society as the image of it, we we depict, we call upon Mitzrayim. That's Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was contaminated. It was impure. It was corrupt. It was morally depraved. It was absent of godliness and spirituality and holiness. That's Mitzrayim. It's the ultimate of the physical, mundane, material world. It's the ultimate of the pleasure of the here and now is Mitzrayim. Whatever you associate with Saddam, Saddam was destroyed. And the capital of this moral corruption became forever and perpetuity Mitzrayim. In fact, I would argue, and I did for a very long time, one Shabbos Hagadol, that the three times in the Torah when it tells us that there's a biblical prohibition to go back to Mitzrayim. Once Hashem took us out of Egypt, the Torah on three occasions tells us we are forbidden to return to Egypt. And we explored in that lengthy shear many years ago, how is it that we did return? Revavad Yosef Zatzal was a Dayan in Mitzrayim. Maybe there are people sitting here now. We have people, members of our community, who grew up in Cairo, grew up in Egypt. The Jews did go back. So did that prohibition remain in perpetuity? Was it temporary? It's an amazing halachic discussion. But I argued in that shear, it's not an original thought, I shared the argument that the prohibition of returning to Mitzrayim is not just a geographic physical prohibition to go there. It is a metaphysical prohibition. God says, you used to live in a society of superstition. You used to live among pagans who worshipped idols. You used to live among narcissistic, self-centered people who thought they were deities. You used to live among those who thought silly things like a red string would impact your destiny. You used to live among those who subscribe to superstition. And Hashem says, I took you out of there. I broke you free. I welcomed you in. I brought you into a relationship with me. Tomim tiya Hashem Enough of the narishkeit and the superstition and the silliness. Daven to me. I gave you 613 schoolos. They're called mitzvahs. Don't neglect the mitzvahs and subscribe to the silliness. I took you out of Mitzrayim. That's the prohibition to go back. Mitzrayim is a place of superstition, silliness, corruption, moral depravity. And that's what the Vishnitzer says. Yaakov Avinu, the holiness of Yaakov, the greatness of Yaakov was Vayechi. He brought a lively, dynamic, passionate, enthusiastic Judaism even to Mitzrayim. It's not just that Vayechi Yaakov found the ability to live as a proud Jew where? In Canaan. And then he went to Mitzrayim and he took off his yarmulke and he hid in the basement and he assimilated his values. No, Vayechi Yaakov. Yaakov was alive. Hichnes chiyas. Even to those who were so caught up in the pursuit of the material and the physical of the pleasure, even those who were touched and tapped by the assimilation, he breathed life back into them. He revived them. He brought a Judaism and a dynamism and he elevated and he woke them up. We're going to speak tonight. We continue our series on the American Orthodox Rabbinate. It's at 7.30, so you'll break your fast quickly. 
and come. Feel free to bring more snacks to the talk if you want. It's at 7.30 tonight. I have the great privilege tonight of talking about Rabbi Mordechai Pinchas Taitz, Zecher Tzadik Levracha. It's a great privilege because he was an extraordinary Rav who had an amazing impact on the American Jewish community. And it's a great privilege because my family was extraordinarily close with him and was very involved in the growth of the Elizabeth community. But, and we'll talk about tonight, Vayichi Rabbi Taitz, to a community that was depicted as a place that Judaism could never take root, filled with ignorance and assimilation, and to build a thriving Torah community. We'll talk about how he did it and what motivated him to do it, and maybe some of the things that we can still follow the model of what he did that is tonight. So the vision is who says, Vayichi Yaakov, just because you find yourself in an Eretz Mitzrayim doesn't mean it should extinguish the flame and the passion of your Judaism. It has to be alive, it has to be vibrant, it has to be something which is great and something which is real. He continues, Vayi Yimei Yaakov. Listen to what he says. Koyom chashav she'en lo rak oso hayom. Lekayim shuv yom echad. V'choyom haya bedaitu shu asikom shokoy shnei chayav. This is how he understands the clumsiness of the Pasuk. Pasuk says, Vayihi yimei Yaakov, and it was the days of Yaakov, shnei chayav, the years of his life. What do you mean the days of Yaakov, the years of his life, 147 years? Which is it? The days, the years? So the Vishnitzer says, Yaakov lived each and every day to its fullest. So before you got to the years, Vayihi yimei shnei, koyom chashav she'en lo rak oso ayom, every day he considered that all he had was that day. All he has was that day. That's the bracha that Yaakov, who lived his life that way, Vayihi Yimei Yaakov, the days of Yaakov, he lived every day. Every day to its fullest. Every day as if it's his last. I hate when people say that. Because if you knew it was your last day, you quit your job. And you wouldn't do the laundry. And you wouldn't do, but, but if you're going to live, you need that job to pay for the bills tomorrow. So you can't live every day as if it's your last. Because that would be living irresponsibly, actually. But it means live every day not knowing when will be your last. Have no regrets. Tell the people you love you love and immerse yourself in the activity and the ambition and the aspiration of the things you want to be doing. Yaakov lived every day to its fullest. And then you know what Yaakov did? He took that very same quality and he passed it on to his sons. Perak Memches Pasachaf, the bottom of page 272. When he gathers his children to give a bracha, what does it say? Vayivarchem bayom ahuleimor, when he's giving Ephraim and Menashe the bracha, which we'll talk about in a moment, how is it introduced? So the simple understanding is that on that day, the day that he was with Menashe and Ephraim, the day that he said to Yosef, no, bring these kinderlach, by the way, who are they? Ah, I know who they are. Bring these kinderlach, let me give them a bracha. So it was on that day that he interacted with these inaklach uh, that he gave them the bracha. That's a simple way to understand it. But Moshe Leib Sosifer says, you know what the bracha he gave to Ephraim and Menashe was? Vayivarchem, he gave them a bracha. And you know what the bracha was? Bayomahu, live today. The bracha, Vayivarchem, you know what the bracha, what he transmitted, the bracha that he gave them was? Bayomahu, that every day all you have is that day. Stop looking to tomorrow and stop getting stuck in yesterday. But Vayivarchem, the bracha was? Bayomahu, what you have is today. Be present. Be mindful. Be in the here and now. Live the moment. So many people are forfeiting and conceding their lives, stuck in the past or anticipating or worried about the future, and in, that, in the process, forfeiting the present. We know the present is the gift from above. That's why it's called the present. 
So all we have is the present. Vayivarchem. What was the bracha that Yaakov gave? He gave what he had achieved. That's the beginning of the parasha. Says the vision of Vahi yimei Yaakov. Kol yom. Rak ayom. Yimei. The days of his life because Yaakov had mastered the ability to live that day. To be in that moment. To be present which was happening in the here and now. That's the vision of and that's the quality that he took and he gave to his grandchildren. What was the bracha? To teach them how by Yomahu. Kindelach, put the phone away. We're going to spend some time together. We're going to be present. We're not talking about the future, the pit. We're not stuck. Let's just be in the here and now. Let's experience the biggest bracha I can give you is by Yomahu. To be in the here and now, to be fully present. Rabbi Salavitchik also has a comment on the fact that the Torah tells us that there were 17 years. And why does he say 17 years? It's not a coincidence. Yaakov and Yosef had 17 years before they were separated. And now they have 17 years again when they are reunited. Yaakov's teachings were responsible for Yosef's tenacity and his persistence in times of distress as well as success. Yaakov knew the longer a leader exercises authority, the tougher and more proud and less sensitive he becomes. There was still danger that after Yaakov's death, Yosef might imitate other rulers in their way of life. Yaakov therefore reviewed the teachings he had passed on to Yosef during his first 17 years. He recognized the need to fortify Yosef, the middle-aged viceroy of Egypt who wielded absolute power against all temptations associated with the exercise of that power. So the Rav depicts it that the 17 years were to reinforce it was Chazara, 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 and Nachamo Chazara. You always need more Chazara. But I would argue humbly that may be a little different for it. We know that when Yaakov leaves and has to run from the home of his father, from Yitzchak, where does Yaakov go and study for the next 14 years? He learns the yeshiva of? Shein Ve'ever. Why the yeshiva of Shein Ve'ever? So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, his name is the Yaakov, I think it's Rav Yaakov, has a pshat. He says, when Yaakov learned in the home of Yitzchak, he was learning in the base medrash, the ivory tower, the place of, you were protected and insulated from the influences of the outside. It was a place of purity. It was academic. Yeshiva Shein Ve'ever was not book smarts. It was the place that you learned street smarts. It was the university of how to operate in this world. It was how to be a balabas. There's one learning that you do when it's Torah only. And then there's another level of learning, another type of learning that needs to prepare you for Torah and. Torah and a parnasa, Torah and a spouse, Torah and changing a diaper, Torah and... There's another Torah where you don't have the luxury of learning all day, all the time, and have everything taken care of for you. And so if Yaakov says... Yaakov Avinu, when he ran from Esav and fled from Yitzchak's home, he left the protection and the insulation of the base medrash of a Yitzchak, and he had to go learn in the yeshiva Hashem Ve'ever. It was a different limud. It was a different curriculum. It prepared him to live in the world differently. And therefore, perhaps you can make the same argument here. The first 17 years that Yosef was growing up in Yaakov's home, Yaakov was transmitting what he had learned from Yitzchak. That was the Torah of Torah only. That was the Torah of being immersed entirely in the yeshiva, in the base medrash, in the kolel. No outside exposure, no outside influence, no outside threat. Now that he comes to Mitzrayim, and Yosef is in an altogether different position in life, he's the viceroy of Egypt, now Yaakov has to transmit for the equal amount of time, for the equal and opposite amount of time, for the next 17 years, now Yaakov has to transmit to him a different curriculum. And it's not the curriculum of Torah only of the Beis Medrash, it's the curriculum of, as a ruler of Egypt, as a ruler of the world, 
How do you take Torah and apply it in that new setting, in that new environment? How do you balance Torah with the conflict and tension of other values and other interests and things that are competing for your, for your time? I'll just mention this editorial comment, which is one of my hang-ups, and I'm not sure how to change it, but I think that our yeshiva and seminary system need to adapt to spend time certainly allowing our children to be immersed in a world that's Kulo Torah, in which perhaps they've not had the merit to live until then, so to spend some time in a world immersed in a world that is Kulo, protective, insulated Torah, to discover who they are, but at some point in their education, the end of Shana Aleph, Shana Bet, Shana Gimel, Shana Dal, depending what track they're on, but at some point the curriculum should change to how to be a great balabas, how to be a great balabasta in this world. When you're going to go to work, how are you still kovei itim Torah? And when you have children who are hanging off of you and who need you as a young woman, how do you go to shul for ni'ilah and yom kippur? What does it mean to give up your own davening because you're raising children? Are we teaching and preparing not just how you can live as ovde Hashem and Yirei Shemayim when all there is is you, immersed, protected, insulated from the world, but how can you take the values of Torah and how do we teach you and prepare you and transition you for when you're going to need to integrate that into the world as a whole? I'm not sure where we're teaching that. So perhaps these second 17 years that correspond in equal and opposite, the 17 years at the beginning of Yosef's life, we're teaching this second curriculum, this new type of Torah altogether. Altogether. Perak Mem Zayim Pasach of Tes. Perak Mem Zayim Pasach of Tes is the very next Pasach. Vayikravu Yimei Yisrael Amos. Yaakov is going to die. Vayikral of Nodli Yosef. Vayomar Lo Im Namatzasi Chaim Beinecha. Simna Yad Chataches Yerechi. If you love me, if you're compassionate to me, so please take an oath. Vasisa Imadi Chesed VeEmes Al Nasik Bereini BeMitzrayim. I need you to do a great Chesed with me. A Chesed. Chesed ve'emes. And what's the chesed ve'emes? Do not, I beg of you, bury me in Mitzrayim. Ask the vision of the Rebbe, the Imrechaim. L'chore eiza asiyah hizu im lo yikbrenu b'mitzrayim. It's a very peculiar formulation. Ya- ya- uh, Yaakov says to Yosef, make me a promise. I need you to swear. There's something I need you to do. When you say there's something I need you to do, do sounds like active. And what is the thing I need you to do? Promise me the thing you'll do? <coughs> Don't bury me in Mitzrayim, which is passive. So why is it formulated in this unusual fashion? And says the Vishnitzer, <laughs> which is, Do you know sometimes if you're passive, you had the opportunity, you had this incredible juicy gossip, you heard the most amazing thing that will give you great social standing when you're the one who gets to spread it and disseminate it and you're the source of it. You have the juiciest piece of gossip to share. And you know what? You sit on your hands and you put a duct tape across your mouth and you sit there on the couch and you hold it in and you don't tell anyone the Lashon Hara. Do you get a mitzvah? Big deal, you'll say. You just didn't do the wrong thing. You didn't do the wrong thing. You know, you don't get Mafta uh, Yona because you didn't do the wrong thing. We don't honor you at the dinner because you didn't do the wrong thing. Says the Gemara, no, we do. The Gemara condition says, when you were able to muster the, the courage and the energy and the fortitude to hold back from doing the wrong thing that you were so tempted and drawn to do, 
the Torah, Hashem treats it as if you did a mitzvah. Now you'll say, you'll say, what do you mean you're not burying him in Mitzrayim? You have to bury him somewhere, so that is an active thing. I saw some of you shaking your head. You didn't like the vision, it's just question. I, need, I have something I need you to do. Don't bury me in Mitzrayim. But you're forgetting that there was a very long period of time where Yosef was in limbo. He was neither buried in Mitzrayim, nor did he find his final resting place in Eretz Yisrael, in Shechem. It wasn't until 210 years later when they take his bones in his coffin that causes the sea to split and Moshe himself carries them or those who became Tamei Mesa needed the Pesach Sheni. Everyone else was looking for the gold and silver that washed up and Moshe was busy looking for Atzmas Yosef. So Yosef, it was passive. Yosef laid in limbo until he'd have that final resting place, that final burial. He said, even until then in this transition time, I don't want to be in the soil. I do not want to be immersed. I do not want to be attached or connected to this morally depraved, corrupt place. Don't bury me here. And they acquiesced. They listened. They fulfilled the promise. So again, that was the Vishnitzer's question. They fulfilled not doing something. So why does the Torah call that do me, do me a good, do me a solid? And the answer is this Gemara and Kedushan teaching us that lesson that even when you don't do the bad, the Torah treats that as if you did the good. So the Parsha continues, Yaakov gets sick, and Yosef comes to strengthen him, and they have this conversation about make me the promise. They have the, I always say every year, because I love this language of the Torah. There's a lot to talk about. We've talked about it previously, but he talks about Rachel. Like, like Lahavdil, my... Page 270, Pasuk Zion. I'm not speaking about it. I'm just in passing. When I was coming from Padan Aram, Mesa Alai Rachel. Like, that's how you talk about your car. Would you believe my car died on me? Would you believe that I've had this laptop for five years and I was writing this important speech and my laptop died on me? And you know what else died on me? Mesa Alai Rachel. Would you believe Rachel up and died on me? She died on me. Mesa Alai Rachel. Mesa Alai Rachel. There's actually something very beautiful and romantic in Mesa Alai Rachel. If you look in the text itself, actually, it's totally extraneous. It has nothing to do with this promise. Yaakov is about to make Yosef promise, don't bury me in Mitzrayim. And in the middle, he inserts the story, your mother up and died on me. She died on me. Can you believe I changed the oil every six months? And... I replaced the windshield washer fluid, and I had her, you know, waxed in the car wash and took good care of her. And nevertheless, would you believe she died on me? On the, on the highway, on the side of the highway. She died on me on the side of the highway. It's a funny formulation, but in other ways, a very beautiful and romantic formulation. And the whole notion that Yaakov inserts it here is itself romantic, because it has nothing to do with anything. But Yaakov can't talk about his passing and his transition to the next world without thinking about his beloved Rachel, without thinking about his Rachel, who Mesa Alai, she died on him. We were supposed to grow old together. We were supposed to have a future together. We were supposed to go to the simchas of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren together. And Mesa Alai Rachel, she died on me. What happened to our plan? What happened to our promise? She died on me. There's something very beautiful about it. It's worth looking more at those psukim. We're not going to do it now. Perek Memches, Pasuk Tezvav, the next page. 
He gives a bracha to Yosef and he says, Ha'elokim asher sachu avosai lefanav Avram v'yitzchak Ha'elokim ha'ro'e osi me'odi ad hayom hazeh Oh, so beautiful. Yaakov tells Yosef, he gives him a bracha and he says, the Ribbonu Shalom, and how can I describe Hashem? The special deity, the special father that I have in heaven with whom I have this incredible relationship. How can I describe him to you? How can I identify him for you? Let me tell you. He is Sisachu Abbasai Lefanav Avram Yitzchak. My forefathers walked in front of him, Avram and Yitzchak, my father and my Zayda. Ha'elokim, he is the God who is Haro'eh Osi Me'odi Arayom Hazeh. What does Haro'eh mean? He shepherds me. Me'odi, from my inception, from when I came to be until Arayom Hazeh. Isn't it a beautiful description of the Ribbonu Shalom Ha'elokim Haro'eh. The God Haro'eh. So the Ramban here writes Haro'eh. Perak Mem Ches Pasuk Tes Vav. Anyone still bringing their, their Makros Gedolos? Those days are long over. The Ramban writes, Haro'eh Osi. Where's this Ramban? Yeah. So says the Ramban, you know what the word haro'e, shepherd, comes from? It comes from the word re'a, or friend. A friend. Says the Ramban, the Ribbonu Shalom, what Yaakov was saying is, you know, from my inception, from when I came into this world until this day, you know who my best friend on the planet is? It's the Ribbonu Shalom. He's always there, and he always listens, and he's always available, and he always comes through, and he's always with me. My best friend, my most loyal confidant on the planet, from the day I was born until today. Not a fair weather friend, and not a friend only in good times, and not a friend who got distracted by his own life, but the friend I could rely and depend on. Haro'e osi. Simple pshat, the simple understanding of haro'e osi is that he is the one who shepherded me. But the Ramban says, no. It's not that he shepherded me. Haro'e osi, who served as my friend, as my confidant. That's how Yaakov is describing to Yosef his relationship with Hashem. Isn't that our job to teach our children and grandchildren? I'm in a relationship. Hashem is my best friend. Not just do this, don't do this, go there, light that, say this, wear this. It's Yantif, it's Shabbos, Geret. Not just do's and don'ts. That's not what Yad, that's not what Judaism, and it's not what's going to enable it to survive. If we want a continuity, we have to tell the story Yaakov told his children to our children. Namely, the story of Ha'elokim Haro'e'osi, the God who shepherded me through my life, the God who connected the dots, the God who created the opportunities, the God who came through for me the way he did for Yaakov. Let me tell you my family narrative. Let me tell you my personal story. Not one in which I take credit, and not one in which I blame others, but let me tell you the version of the story where Hashem was with me all along. The Ribbonu Shalom was pulling the strings and brought me to this point and created the family that we have. I need to tell that story like Yaakov does to Yosef and his children. The story of how Hashem shepherds us, but also the story of how Hashem is our best friend. He's our Reya. Rashi, the Gemara Shabbos, gives an amazing shot to the famous story we all know, the Gemara Shabbos Lamed Aleph, of Hillel 
and the ger, the potential convert, the conversion candidate, comes to Hillel and says, "Tell me, um, tell me the whole Torah on one foot." And what does Hillel tell him? The essence of Torah, the ikkar of Torah, is what one should not do to one's friend what he wouldn't do want done on himself. That's what Hillel answers. That's it. That's that's part of Torah. Part of Torah is interpersonal. Part of Torah is also our responsibility to Hashem, to ourselves. It's a lot of mitzvahs. So Rashi there in that Gemara and Shabbos, look it up, Shabbos, Laman Aleph, Laman Aleph. Rashi in that Gemara says, you know who the Reah don't do to your friend what you wouldn't want done to yourself? Do you know who the friend is that Hillel was talking about? The friend is the Ribbon Shalom. Hashem is a member of the group, a comrade, a compatriot. Hashem is a friend. There's no sense of a rule from above, of transcendence, of supremacy. There's no royal pride or inaccessibility, but rather it's intimacy and closeness. Hashem is our friend. And that's what Hillel was saying. Have a relationship. You want to know what Judaism is all about? Conversion candidate, you want to join our people? It's not about you. Don't join our people because you think that if you're now a Jew, it'll open doors for you. If you're a Jew, you'll be rich. If you're a Jew, you'll eat all kinds of delicacies. If you're a Jew, you'll get all kinds of jobs. It's not, don't become a Jew because it's going to serve you. Become a Jew if you understand that the ichor of Judaism is don't do to your friend what you wouldn't want done to you. You wouldn't want someone being disloyal to you. Don't be disloyal to Hashem. You wouldn't want somebody ignoring, neglecting you. Don't ignore and neglect Hashem. That's how Rashi understands Hillel's answer to that conversion candidate. And you see this one of the place, the Pasuk in Bamidbar. Truas Melech, Bo, should be understood as Truas Melech, a God-man community. The Truas, he's a Melech, but Truah, he's a Rea. He's a Rea. Get into the Truah, the whole, uh, the chauffeur, not for now. But when we think of a shepherd, what is a shepherd if not harnessing and cultivating a sense of loyalty and friendship? The shepherd becomes the friend of the flock, cares genuinely and deeply about the flock, and that's why it goes through the experience of, of shepherding. Pasuk Chaf. We already saw this. That Yaakov gave the bracha to Menashe and Ephraim saying, what was the bracha? Vayivarchem. What was the bracha? Said Rabbi Moshe Leib the bracha was? Bayomahu. Learn to live in the here and now. Don't forfeit the moment. They will in perpetuity bless their children to be like you, like Ephraim and Menashe. Vayasem is Ephraim lefnei Menashe. And he puts Ephraim before Menashe. Why does he put Ephraim before Menashe? Is that the correct order? So why does he put Ephraim before Menashe? So again, we've discussed in the past, most of this, we do read the same Parsha every year, so a lot of it we've discussed in the past, and yet there's always more, always more to discuss. We've discussed in the past the whole episode of the switching of the hands. What was Yosef thinking? What was Yaakov thinking? Yosef tried to correct Yaakov. Yaakov didn't. What was going on with the whole switcheroo with the hands? Not for now. But he put Ephraim before Menashe and says the Kedushas Levi, Says Rav Levi Yitzchik of Bardichev. You know why he put Ephraim before Menashe? Because Yaakov was communicating something so important to Yosef. Yosef put Menashe before Ephraim. And who's Menashe? What's he named for? Kinashani Elohim Kol Amali. Kadosh Baruch Hu caused me to forget all of my hardship. Yes, the past was difficult and laced with pain, but Hashem has caused me the ability to endure and to move on nonetheless. Ephraim derives his name from where? Because I've been able to propagate and promulgate. I've been able to spread 
even in this land of challenges, ah, been able to thrive and be filled with bracha. One is the sur meirah and one is the asetov. One is the avoid the negative and the other is run to the good. And Yosef thinks, you know, methodologically, strategically, you have to start with sur meirah and then you can get to the asetov. And comes Yaakov and he says, hey buddy, son, here in Gullus, if all your children and grandchildren are going to hear is the Menashe story, all they're going to hear is Kinashe, Kola Mali, that it's Shretz designed to be a Yid, everything they have to abstain from, all the Surmeira, they're going to bail out. They're going to book out. They're going to drop it. They're not going to be interested. Here in this Golas, you need to introduce the Ephraim before the Menashe. The beauty and the elevation and the wonder and the glory and the greatness and the joy and the happiness and the love Ephraim has to go before Manasseh if our story is going to have a continuity. That's what Yaakov was telling Yosef. Yosef thought, methodologically, if, you're, if you have convictions, so you start with Sur Meirah, and then you get to Asetov. To which Yaakov was responding, no, maybe in the perfect world that order might be true. But here in the Golas, here in a world of temptation and opportunity, here in a world where it's easy to drop it and walk away, assimilate and integrate, you better emphasize the Ephraim before the Menashe. You have to emphasize the good and the pleasant and the pleasurable and the attraction and the joy. You have to make the argument about why to be a Jew before you just talk about they hate us, before you just get to the Kinashani Elohim. So Levi Yitzchak says very, very beautifully, the Ephraim has to come before the Menashe. The Menashe is all about the past and the negative. And the Ephraim is all about the future and the build and the here and now and the here and now. Again, I'm giving you a little bit of a preview to whet your appetite for tonight. But that was also part of the greatness of Rabbi Taitz. Rabbi Beryl Wine said that he went into Rabbanus and he switched from being a successful lawyer because when he heard from other Rabbanim, particularly European one, was all about the world they lost. All he heard from them was about who was murdered and who was killed and who was lost and what's gone. And when he heard from Rabbi Taitz, he was introduced to a world that he was going to build of what will be of what he could create, of a bright future. And that spoke to him. There's a Menasha where you focus on, and there's the Ephraim. You know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe had a sheet, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's opinion was not to talk about the Holocaust. You could agree, disagree. Certainly, we have a commitment to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe believed, he believed strategically that the future of Jews in America would not be solidified by harping on the horror of the past. All that will do is bring us down. All that will do is bring great sadness. All that will do is bring pessimism and hopelessness. And therefore, it was only one occasion he spoke about the Holocaust in a Fabrengen, and that was after other Gedolim spoke about why the Holocaust happened. He felt a need to come to the defense of the Kedoshim who were murdered in the Holocaust. Khalila, no one had a right to suggest they knew why God did what he did or that it was any fault of those who were gone. The only time he spoke about the Holocaust was he felt a need in a Fabrengen to stand up and defend, which was consistent with who he was, Lubavitcher Rebbe, to stand up and defend the memory of the Kedoshim who were lost. That was the only time. But he believed that otherwise, we don't talk about. We, Judaism, we don't define our Judaism by, by the Holocaust and by the Shoah. It's not who we are. It's an interesting thing. He was ahead of his time because you know the, the polls show today that today's millennial, younger people, younger Jews, they don't want this Holocaust obsession. They, not that they've moved on, chas v'shom, anyone could move on from that atrocity, but they don't want their Judaism to be out of guilt, out of the negativity, out of the horror of the Holocaust. 
paint a picture of who we're meant to be, how we're meant to transform the world, how the world needs our timeless messages more than ever. That was the Lubavitcher Rebbe's thinking, and that's what Rabbi Taitz did, and that's what Yaakov is telling Yosef. Ephraim before Menashe. Vayasam es Ephraim lefnei Menashe. Before you're going to talk about Nashani is Kola Mali, before you're going to talk about the Holocaust, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the misery, the hardship, before you get Ephraim, talk about the future, Hefrani, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu caused me to spread, and my brightest and best is yet ahead, and what we're going to build and what we're going to create, that's really what it's all, that's really what it's all about, says the Kedusha Slavi and Rabbi Tights. So we give a bracha to our kids on Friday night to be like, to be like Ephraim and Menashe. Why? We've shared a couple reasons in the past. I want to very quickly share a couple more, a couple more right now. This is very meaningful to me. I mentioned in the drusha last year, the brachas were always very sacrosanct in my home growing up. My parents are here now, and they still are today. Wherever my parents are in the world, and they, they uh, split their time between Israel and here, they give a bracha virtually to whichever children and grandchildren they're not with physically present. So whether it's before Shabbos over a FaceTime or whether it's on a Friday night when my parents are at my home today, you still look at my father and you see, he closes his eyes and he thinks and gives the bracha to each of his children and grandchildren. So minag Yisrael to bless our children. Baruch Hashem, one I've adopted. I've given my children brachas since they're born and I now give my son-in-law a bracha. I didn't really ask him, but I did ask his father-in-law for, his father for permission. And Baruch Hashem now over FaceTime, the little uh, three-month-old, over FaceTime, I put my hand on his head and I give him a bracha, and last Friday he even smiled when I did it. It's probably indigestion, but I'm going to believe it was because <laughs> I'd like to believe it's because his Zayda gave him a bracha. Anyway, where did it come from? Where did this minag Yisrael come from to give a bracha to our children? Not everybody has the minag, and I'm not judging someone who doesn't have the minag. All I'll tell you is you're out of your mind if you don't give your kids a bracha. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying you're crazy. <laughs> I'm just saying, and I'm not saying you should change the minute of your family. I'm just telling you, you're nuts, crazy, and out of your mind if in the world we're living in and what can happen to our children and grandchildren, you don't want to pause once a week to give a bracha for the well-being of your children and your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Baruch Hashem. So where did this minute come from? Where does it come from? So this Pasuk, Vayvarchem, and he says that Yisrael, they're going to give that bracha. Ephraim and Menashe are relatively obscure personalities in Tanakh. We don't have a whole lot of Ephraim and Menashe. So of all the opportunities to give a bracha on a Friday night, at least our sons, our daughters we give others, but our sons, why not Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov? Why not Moshe and Aaron? Why not David and Shlomo? Why are we giving a bracha, Ephraim and Menashe, these obscure personalities? Why not? Ephraim and Menashe don't make it. They're not the Zion Rome. They're not among the seven shepherds. They're not, they don't make it into the sukkah. I don't think anyone here has in their Ushpizen chart a picture of Ephraim and Menashe. So they don't qualify, they don't get the invite to the Sukkot party, they're not on the invite for the Ushpizen, and yet that's who we're giving the bracha to be like. Where does it come from? Rechaim David Alevi in his Chuvos, Aseh says that he looked high and far, and he could not find a source for the Minag to give a bracha on a Friday night. So he offers his own suggestion. The Mogan Avram and Simon Reish Ayin Dalad, of Avram Gambino, the Mogan Avram writes that there is a Minag in his time, there was a minag in the time of the Magen Avram to give your mother a kiss on her hand on Friday night. We would call it Eshes Chayel. We give a virtual kiss. Right? Friday night, you're sitting down at the table. It's not a sexist comment. 
the assumption, certainly in the time of the Magen Avram, a couple centuries ago, was that the mother did the shopping and the cooking and prepared the meal, and you're about to sit down and enjoy the beautiful delicacies of a great Shabbos meal. They'd give a kiss to the mother on her hand, to kiss the mother's hand. So Rav Chaim David Alevi sees this Magen Avram and says, perhaps the origin of giving our children a bracha is that when a father sees a child with gratitude to the mother, he wants to give that child a bracha. The bracha is the reaction, is the pride, is the joy in seeing the child, the next generation, who are willing to give the mother a kiss, who are willing to feel hakara satov, who are willing to say thank you. That's reason number one. Others explain that we specifically give this because, this is the reason we've shared in the past, whole Sefer Bereshers is a story of sibling rivalry, going all the way back to Cain and Hevel, and Yosef and his brothers. And finally, we have Menashe and Ephraim, who the older defers to the younger. There's a love, a loyalty, a mutual, mutual admiration, a respect. Finally, we've encountered a generation that is not defined by sibling rivalry, but sibling love. We turn to our children and we say, them, be like them. Be just like them. There's no, no Yitzchak and Yishmael, no Yaakov and Esav, no Yosef and brothers, no Cain and Hevel. Menashe, they got along? That's what we want you to be like. So when we give the bracha, it's to be like it's to be like them. The matovim anoim sherosachem gam yachad. The shalom bias of the candles illuminates a vision of our children all getting along. A third suggestion of the twelve sons and their families: Ephraim and Menashe are the only ones raised in the Gullus outside of Israel, and that we in the Gullus turn to our children and say, just like Menashe and Ephraim didn't go off to college and lose and drop their Judaism. They would never entertain intermarrying. They never lost their passion and their vigor. They clung tenaciously to the teachings and traditions of their forefathers. That is our hope and our aspiration for you, for you as well. A fourth suggestion, Rav Moshe Sternbach, in his Tam Vadas, he says the following, that when the Torah says you give a bracha to be like Ephraim and Menashe, it doesn't mean to be like Ephraim and Menashe per se. What it means is, give a bracha like Ephraim and Menashe got a bracha. Here, the parsha is beginning with Yaakov specifically inviting, encountering, engaging Ephraim and Menashe to give them a bracha, that we too need to set aside time to give that bracha. With the pace of life moving so fast, and with so many distractions around us, we forget to sometimes pause and see the bracha right in front of us and be the bracha for the people around us. And what we're learning from Menashe and Ephraim, what we're learning from this episode of Yaakov is to give a bracha. So we say, doesn't mean to be like you, this fourth suggestion of Moshe Sternbach says. It doesn't mean to be like you per se, but it means to be like you in the sense of designating and spending time to be able to give a bracha. Okay, I had a thousand more things to say, but let me just choose one more. A thousand more things to say, let me choose one more. Ay, ay, Perak Mem Tes, Pasuk Tes Vav. Perak Mem Tes. He goes and gives very funny brachos. Imagine, you call your children close, you want to give a bracha. Usually you want to give a bracha, you say, here are the trusts and estates and the wills. Here's my bracha that you should be a benteira and yirishemayim, a basteira, you should grow, give nacha. That's a bracha. What's this bracha? Yehuda, you impetuous, Levianid, you this. This is the bracha. The bracha is, let me tell you everything wrong with yourselves. That, in fact, is a bracha. When a parent cares enough to say, here's what I think you need to work on, and I share it with you out of love, that is a bracha. This is another conversation, but it's the opposite of the bracha that people mistakenly think is a bracha, but is a curse of helicopter parenting. 
Helicopter parenting, the trophy, the, the participation trophy. You're all looking at me, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You know what a participation trophy is? Participation trophy is everybody who participated gets a trophy. There's no winner, there's no loser, because that would make someone feel bad. We don't want anyone to feel bad, so everyone gets a trophy. A participation trophy society, that's what we live in. So we live in a world where everyone is the best, and everyone is perfect, and everyone is equally great, and everyone should have an opportunity, and everyone gets a trophy in life. Until you graduate to the real world, and that's just not true. The real world where now you have to have resumes and people, you're going for an interview to get married and your resume is being evaluated based on the most silly criteria and all of a sudden there goes the helicopter parenting participation trophy. Everyone's equal, everyone's the best. Nobody's the best. From, nobody's good enough, in fact, for my child. So, so the best parenting is not the one when you say, you're perfect, you're amazing, everything's great, you're wonderful. The perfect parenting, I always walk into, I always walk in. On the rare occasions I've gone to parent-teacher conferences, I walk in and I say, what did my kid do wrong? I know for those teachers, Yecheved likes to say that when we were children, when we were children, not she and I, although true probably for she and I, when we were children, so children used to shake on parent-teacher conference night, worried what the parents are gonna come home and how much trouble they're gonna be in. Now, the teachers shake on parent-teacher conference night, <laughs> Worried to hear from the parents of everything they've done wrong and why the child is perfect. I can't believe you gave them this grade and they gave them this many tests and I heard you reprimanded them in this way and you're not teaching enough and you don't bestow enough love and that's the generation that we're living in. So I try to, the rare times that I've gone, I've tried to be the opposite. I sit down, I tell the teacher, you're perfect, you do everything right, tell me what's wrong with my child. Because that's the job is to give the teacher the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's a bigger bracha to your children, and that's the bracha that Yaakov gives to his children, as he says, you're amazing, and I love you, and that's a given. Now let me tell you what you need to work on. That's the bracha I want to leave you with, is how you could be the best version of yourself. And the only way you'll be the best version of yourself is if I'm able to tell you what you need to work on. Anyway, the one last thing, Pasuk Tezvav. That wasn't it. Pasuk Tezvav, bottom of page 278. Yidan Nachash. Where am I? Sorry, Perak Pasik Tazva Vayar Manucha Kito Vesaratki Naima Vayit Shekhmolis Bova Hilamas Oveid. This is the bracha he gives to Yisachar. Yisachar is strong like a donkey. Rovates Bain Amish Basayim, he rests between the boundaries. Vayar Manucha, he saw peace and tranquility. He saw rest. Kitov, that rest is good. Vesaratki Naima, and the land that it's naim, that it's pleasant. Vayet Shechmola's bowl, but he bent his shoulder to bear, Vayilamas Oved, and he became a laborer. He became an indentured laborer. What is this bracha? What does this mean? So Rav Gavorka says the following pshat: Vayar Menucha Kitov, that if a person wants Menucha, you want rest and you want tranquility and you want happiness and you want peace in your life, Vayet Shechmola's bowl, then you have to learn Lisbol Savlanut. You have to learn savlanut. What is savlanut? So people mistakenly translate the word savlanut as patience. But what is patience? Rav, Rav Volbe writes that the word savlanut, lisbol, we're going to read starting next week in Sefer Shmos, that they were crumbling and suffering tachas, sivlos mitzrayim. Under the patience of mitzrayim? Sivlos doesn't mean patience, savlanut, because it doesn't mean under the Savlanut means the burden. Lisbol, Tachas Sivlos Mitzrayim is 
They were crumbling under the burden of Mitzrayim. Savlanut is the ability to bear the burden and to be calm. It's to live with whatever life throws your way and not get bent out of shape. Savlanut, a more accurate translation, is not patient, but forbearing. It's the ability to absorb whatever happens and not get bent out of shape and not lose your cool and not concede your health, your physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health. So I love this interpretation. It says, If you crave menucha, you want peace and tranquility and happiness in your life, then the answer for it is not to get peace and happiness around you, because nobody has that opportunity. The answer is, Lean in your shoulder and lean how to have savlanut. Be forbearing. Learn how to absorb whatever life throws your way. Learn how to not be anxious and not be angry. Learn how to accept it in a forbearing way, and you'll discover the menucha that we all crave. Wishing everyone not an easy fast, but a meaningful, transformative, uplifting fast. And hopefully see you tonight at 7.30.